Hello, everybody. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show, the big show, the 3BY podcast. Coming to you live from Montgomery, well, okay, not live, coming to you recorded from Montgomery <laughs> County, Mississippi, home of, I don't know, there was a deer that ran across the road. Trees. Trees. Lots of trees. Lots of trees. Lots and lots of trees. Uh, Spice and I, this is I Am Salty. We are on a raid. We're on a big trip this today. Uh, we're heading down south. We're southing at the moment. We're, not, we're about 89 miles at this point in time from Jackson, Mississippi, the, the big town, the exciting town. And we're glad we're to going. be going south because we've just listened to a book neither one of us had approached in the last, oh, 40 years or so. Yeah, and it was cold. It was a cold book. It was a very cold book. <laughs> it was a very cold book. It's, it's, it's a book that makes you want to step out into the warm. <laughs> we're, 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 where we are now, there's like still leaves on the trees, and you know, it's like November. Late November, and there's still leaves on the tree because we're going south. But the book is about north. It is, to my knowledge, now I'm sure there are probably others out there, but I don't know about them. To my knowledge, it is the oldest prepping novel that I've ever heard of. And it's not really technically a prepping novel, but it is a prepping novel, and there's a lot of lessons to be learned from it. So this podcast is going to be about that novel. We listened to it on, on an audiobook, which was a, a good production. And um, it's one that a lot of you people may have read. But uh, if you haven't read it lately, I would advise you to revisit it. Because there's things in there I didn't see when I was, what, Eight years old when I read yeah, it the first I think, time? Yeah, I think I read it when I was 10. And it's, it's generally known as a girl's book. But uh, I we had a copy of it sitting around the house, and I was bored, so I started reading it. And then I got entranced. I guess I was I had my prepper self even when I was a kid. So what novel could we possibly be talking about? The Longest Winter by Laura Ingalls Wilder. So I think it's called The Long Winter. Okay, but it sounded like, like the longest, longest winter. winter yeah. <laughs> but those, I mean, Lori Ingalls Wilder, she wrote all a, a long series of children's books. Uh, in the, uh, she wrote them in the early part of the 19th century. They were about her childhood in the uh, later parts of the. Uh, I mean. The, the early, Laura wrote them in the early parts of the 20th century. They were about the later parts of the 19th century, uh, 1880s, 1890s, 1870s. When her family was moving from here to Yan across various frontiers. Yes, um, they lived in. They li- they had lived in uh, Wisconsin. They lived in Kansas and in Indian territory, uh, which they really shouldn't have been living there. And, then they lived in uh, Baroque, Iowa. Most people don't know that unless you happen to know a whole lot about Laura Ingalls Wilder or happen Hap- to travel through Baroque, Iowa. There's not much else in Baroque, Iowa, which is right Except on the Baroque. South Dakota line. Or the, no, it's right on the Minnesota line. Minnesota. It's on the Minnesota line, yeah. Yep. And uh, then she was uh, the... Uh, Book in this place takes place in the small town of Desmet when she was 13. Now, of course, to be fair, not everything in this book is verbatim. It's a novel about her fictionalized a, history, a fictionalized memoir, and so 
But it's absolutely based on real historical events and based on her view through those events. Right. The long winter was, and this is a famously long winter, not just for this book, but it was, I mean, to this day, the single most brutal winter in the history of the northern United States. This is the winter of 1880-1881. Yeah, Google some images uh, if you care to take a look at what it was like. Uh, that gives you a pretty good feel of the descriptions of what's going on here. Basically, the synopsis, of the, for those of you who haven't read it, or even if it's, you have read it, it's been many years, I'll give you a quick synopsis of the story. Lori, Laura and her, uh, her parents, who are called Ma and Pa in the book, and her sister uh, Mary, who is blind, and her sister Carrie, and her sister Grace, are, so there's six of them. In real life, I'm not sure if the boy had been born then or not. The, not relevant. A, hmm? Not relevant. Okay. Anyway, there was a boy in the English family, family too, who died in infancy. But anyway, I don't know if that really happened during this winter or not, but it doesn't matter. Um, pressing right along. The uh, story is, takes place outside of Desmet, which was a town of about what, 80 people at the time. Yeah, 75 they counted. Okay. And uh, they were, our heroes were... Uh, homesteaders, which means they lived on a on a small farm. I believe it was either 40 or 80 acres. I'm not sure. It doesn't really say in the book how big it was, but it would have been either a 40 or 80 acre homestead. And basically, if you could improve the land, build a house, and live on the land for five years, you got to keep it for free. The government gave it to you. That was the deal. Uh, so they had a they had a claim shanty, which was that's where they lived, which is basically claim. a board house. Covered in tar paper. That's it. Uh, One room and one upstairs. Of any kind. You know, tar paper roof. So, yeah, pretty brutal. When they saw the signs that it was going to be a bad winter, the the very first blizzard, which hit in October, the beginning of October, first week. And even for the Dakotas, that's of October. Yeah. Uh, the first blizzard convinced them by blowing half their roof off that they really shouldn't stay in that shanty. So they moved to a, a storefront in town. Now, the storefront, um, a little backstory. It doesn't go into this too much in this book, but uh, Charles Ingalls was a carpenter, and he had built this store. Unlike the, please let me finish, dear. She's rolling her eyes like, this matters. This is important. This is part of the setup. He built this store much better than he built the claim shanty. The claim shanty was just thrown up to get the residency and, you know, they can live in it. And that's, you know, but it was just a slap together. Counted as our first year. It counted as, yeah, it's a structure. Okay, but the store building he bu- he built to rent, and he constructed it much better. It had actual uh, actual siding on it, uh, which really does come into play. It was bigger. It had a better roof. It had a, actually a roof with actual roofing on it, and not just tar paper. So it would be a much better shelter for a family of six to try and overwinter in. Now, it still wasn't insulated. None of these buildings were. 
and it was, of course, in town where they could buy supplies from, you know, the train brings in supplies, and they could just buy supplies from the, from the town and, and make it through the winter much easier. Or so the theory goes. So, what happened was, the storm started coming and they didn't stop coming. And they didn't stop coming. And they didn't stop coming. This is a true story. It's Three days of blizzard, day or two without a blizzard, where it's only 40 below and sunny. And then another blizzard. Right. And, and of course, no, no uh, weather service, so you never knew when one was coming. What happened was a, they had the, one of these low-pressure uh, Arctic ex- polar expressions, what they call them, just came down and it just sat there and spun on them. Yeah, the jet stream just dipped down and sat over their heads all winter long, bringing Arctic storm after Arctic storm along the same track. It just almost, almost as if it was by clockwork when the storms came, you know. You'd have a, a clear day and then hit them again. Now, the key part to this is they moved into town with these 70 of us on other people because that way they could buy stuff at the store to eat over the winter. Well, the town was served by a single railroad. That was the only way in and out, really, uh, of getting freight in and out. And this railroad ran through a bunch of different cuts. I mean, they had to cut down to railroad tracks can't be, you can't have a lot of hills in them. So you have to level out the hills by building up building up the low areas, and then cut through the hills to keep them level because a train just can't go up and down hill constantly. It just doesn't work that way, especially trains back in those days, which had manual brakemen. And that was a really, I mean, hills were a real big challenge for trains with manual brakemen because the guys were hopping across the cars and twisting the brakes on and off, and it was a really dangerous job, especially in the winter. So, well, these cuts would get filled with snow, and they didn't have the technology at the time that we do today of really effective snow plows for railroads. They, have, they now have these big, huge machines, which are almost like continuous miners that just blast the snow out of there. But they didn't have those back then. Uh, they just had plows. And so when the blizzards started coming, they would clear the tracks and get ready to send a train through the next day, and then the blizzards would close the cuts. And so they'd clear the tracks, and then the blizzard would close the cuts. This happened time and again. Google Google what we're talking about. You can see the pictures of these people trying to get trains through. And, you know, the the snowbanks are over the top of the train. This is, like, ridiculous. Yeah, the Tandy cut is one they were talking about a lot, and we found some images of that. It's just... Incredible. So, anyway, that's long. So the story about is about how they, who were not prepared for this, really, got through the winter. And there's some lessons to be learned about what happened to them that translate to today. And as we were listening to the book, we started writing down a list of some points. So we've got some points here to talk about, about things that we learned from this book and how they relate to uh, 2017, 2018, 2019, as opposed to 1881. A lot of the stuff that they went through still remains the same 
under certain conditions. So let's start talking about, let's hit your list. The first uh, biggest items here are the ones that are still relevant today and the kind of emergencies we might run into. Because transportation can fail, and if the transportation fails, you can no longer depend on the stores. So if you live where it gets cold, you need to have six months of warmth, food, and water available. Warmth, food, and water. Everything else you can work around, but warmth, food, and water. Three things. If you live where it gets cold. Have you got that? What were they again? Warmth, food, and water. Warmth, food, and water. Now, back in the day, they didn't have electricity. Okay, so that wasn't an issue. Uh, They had oil lamps. They had coal. They had wood. And whatever else you could come up with to burn in a stove. Now, the buffalo chips had long been gone. This was buffalo range, but you can burn those, but... They were long gone. So basically, you have coal. And in the Dakotas, you didn't have much wood because there was very little wood out there. So you're not like going to go cut firewood. So this was a big deal. It was a, it was a problem. Now, could, could uh, transportation today get cut? You betcha. We were earlier today over the epicenter of the New Madrid Fault. Yeah, we drove right through. In fact, I, we stopped. I know right where the spot is at the exact center of the fault is. I had been there before, but Spice had never been there. So I actually took her out there, and she was able to see the cotton field, which basically is a cotton field. The sleeping giant wears a blanket of cotton over him, apparently. But this time of year, it's a harvested cotton field. She actually yeah. got a little piece of car, cotton that was laying next to the side of the road and played with it a little bit. And uh, mm-hmm. so she got to see the cotton field. And, you know. If that New Madrid fault went loose as it has done before with very major earthquakes, basically all the bridges in Missouri would fall down, and that's thousands upon thousands of bridges. That's railroads. That's automobiles. That's our semis that deliver most of the stuff to most of the state. And that means all your railroad stuff has to get rerouted. Not just us. Uh, Power lines would be down. Yeah, if you're talking Washington, you might be talking about uh, volcanic eruptions. If you're talking a coastal area, you might be talking hurricane flooding. But, yeah, transportation can and does break down. And another thing to keep in mind is, unlike back in the day with the um, uh, the world that Laura Wilder lived in with the general stores, they tended to stock a lot more of their stock than what our stores do today. Our stores are on a are pretty much all on a um, just-in-time ordering system. Just-in-time ordering system. Our grocery store has got a couple, three days' worth of groceries for our town. And that's not just the perishables. That's the durable goods, too. Uh, ours may be a little bigger, but for the whole county, that would, you know, three days, and that place is empty. So, yeah, it's something to consider. And, you know, transportation can go down. There can be a fuel shortage. There can be... Uh, an EMP. God help us all if that happens. 
Which brings up another one of the points on the list. There will be outliers in the weather pattern. Yes. The way the statisticians talk about it is black swans are going to happen sometime. A black swan is a very rare event. On any given day, you certainly wouldn't expect to see one. You wouldn't expect to see one in any particular place. But sooner or or later, there will be black swans, and weather outliers are that way. You're going to see storms worse than you've ever seen before. You see winters that are longer than you've ever seen before. They're going to be colder than you've ever seen before. They're going to, you're going to see ice storms that are going to be much heavier than they were before, taking out power lines. And this is a big concern to me for you people in the north and us people in the north. Um, how are you going to heat your house, keep your pipes from freezing if you don't have power for two weeks? Uh, this is something you need to deal with, something we have dealt with, dealt with. We have a heating system. We have a propane tank full of propane. It does not require. All we have to do is flick a button. And we've and checked it out to make sure it works it, it before is, the weather gets cold. It is working. We are, Our pilot light is on. It always gives me a warm fuzzy when we get that lit for the year before it gets really cold. Because and then to, I know if power goes out, we don't freeze. And to check the tank and know we've got a whole winter. If we had to, we have a whole winter yep. full of heat. Um, now, we might have to do what they did in this book and can combine it all into and heat one room if that's what you have to do that's what you have to do to conserve the, the fuel but there you are so what else we got there the next uh, basic segment of the list is about dealing with the hard conditions where you're trapped inside all the time and you're down to in their case it was brown bread and potatoes and literally brown bread, not only until they ran bread, out of potatoes. The brown bread being made out of wheat. The wheat you have to grind, and they were using a coffee grinder, which is not very efficient. So they'd be grinding wheat all day to make bread, brown bread, coarse brown bread, to eat. Now here's a, here's a hint. I want you to Google wheat berries. If you have hard red wheat, you don't actually have to cook them to eat them. You can soak them overnight or even better, 18 hours. And they eat just like cereal. They're very bland. Like bland, chewy cereal. We've tried it. Yeah, they're very bland. They're very very chewy, but we've had wheat berries. But they're quite edible. They're quite edible. They did have plenty of sugar for a while. (laughs) Molasses. Uh, they ran out about everything but salt. I think it's the only thing they really didn't run out of. And tea. Yeah. But tea is a nice thing. Tea was a nice thing. Tea is a nice thing. I keep a stock of tea because having a cup of hot tea in the morning makes me happy. And that's something feeds right into something else we had here. Keeping up morale is essential when you got a whole bunch of people in hard situations that are trapped in close company with each other for extended periods of time. I think about that when I think especially about uh, people in urban areas who are going to need to shelter in place and talk about, you know, tucking in and keeping your head down. Man, those four walls would start looking awfully close to you and awfully too familiar after a while. Imagine this. You are Mrs. Ingalls. And you are pretty much stuck all day long in one room with your four daughters aged from I don't know how old Mary was in this book probably 17, 18, something like that 
down to three, okay? And you're stuck in one small room with a big table in the middle of it. So there's basically no room to move around and do anything. And your husband's outside working in the brutal, bitter, dangerous cold. And so you're stuck there with either five or six people. And when the, the blizzards hit and they last three days, you're talking six people in one room eating monotonous food. Morale's going to be an issue. And so. they had taken steps to try and mitigate that. They had uh, schoolwork to try and keep the kids busy, and they had music. Obviously, they were playing their own music and singing and things like that. And everybody was putting on the happy face, especially to uh, keep the little kid from freaking out. They had uh, some reading, you know. But boy, when the fresh reading arrived, that was happy dance day. So there's that. And it's a real deal, especially when you're getting monotonous meal after monotonous meal. You know, this is another thing to think of, too, when when we're talking about storage food. You just can't store wheat and nothing else. Nutritionally, that's bad for you. Psychologically, it's very hard on you. It is. It it actually becomes hard to eat enough, even if you have plenty of the same food. It becomes hard to eat enough of it because we're just, we're wired to be omnivores and we're just not wired to eat the same food and nothing but the same food day after day, meal after meal. So once they were down to nothing but brown bread, they actually had trouble making themselves eat even the little bit of food that was available in some cases because they were just so tired of it. And it really was an emotional stressor for them. Also, there would be nutritional problems. By the time they were talking about the end of April in this, they ran out of preserves about the beginning of January. I was starting to wonder when the teeth were going to get loose and the gums were going to start bleeding from scurvy there. Yeah. Because as long as they had potatoes, they were all right, because potatoes are an awfully nutritionally useful food, actually, if you eat them with the skins. Sorry, that was the road noise. My apologies. If you eat them with the skins. If you eat the uh, skinned version that are like the dried potato dices, or the slices we've got so many of, not as much. You start running low a lot on nutrition a lot sooner. So nutritional issues are a problem, and they started showing up. As uh, Laura described it, and it... it sounded quite plausible to my biologist self. They just felt slow and stupid and unmotivated that's a lot the of the start, time. That's the start of scurvy. It's, and the, it's, it's funny how scurvy is a really weird disease in the fact that you can get it without knowing you have it. And also the attitude really does seem to affect it. I'm not really sure why, but this is the, this is from the Naval Chronicles on to, you know, attitude. If you, if you have scurvy, but you, or I mean, if you're starting to have, but you can keep your attitude and your, you're much better off than, you know, if you're down in the dumps. Now, this is one of the reasons the Royal Navy had so much problem with scurvy. Not only that, but, you know, they had people who were impressed. They did not want to be on these ships, okay? They were basically enslaved. And they were not in a good mood to start with. And then you have cruel officers beating on you all the time and yelling at you and making you do things you don't want to do. Um, the psychological aspect of scurvy is a real deal. Um, it, 
and then once it starts to express yeah, itself, it, it, it erodes com- mood further. It is makes one more irritable and things like that. Right. So it's it's almost a, a feedback loop type thing. Physiologically, it may not have much to do with, but how you it actually does. Well, but the other part of it is too. You can uh, you can start to beat scurvy without even having the food. Uh, it's really bizarre because you know people get out of the doldrums and then the symptoms start clearing up. Uh, I, you know. That that part isn't actually scurvy; it's a separate event. But still, that, that's documented, though. It is. I'm not saying it's not real. I'm just saying it's not scurvy. So, but anyway, the so mental have degradation. Antiscorbutics on hand, okay? Lots of antiscorbutics. And what I mean by that is something that like has vitamin C. And keep an eye out for the signs of cognitive impairment is, oh, sorry, that's, uh, that's how we talk about it in the medical literature. Uh, fuzzy brain, bad memory, lack of motivation. Almondy breath. Your breath starts smelling like almonds. That's starvation kicking in. That's ketoacidosis kicking in from starvation. Also, uh, another one of scurvy is if an old wound that has been healed for a long time starts to reopen. That's not good. But anyway. (laughs) Another element is what started happening in the community as people started running out of food. Even our ultra-moral hero of the series, Pa, when he ran out of food to feed his family, he went to a couple of guys he knew had some seed wheat they were saving for winter. And he had spotted where they were keeping the stores by accident on a visit some months ago. But when he was flat out of food to feed his family, he went in and asked to buy some wheat. And there's a, we uh, don't have any wheat to sell, can't sell you anything, sorry, because they were feed dealers. And the guy was trying to save this wheat to plant plant in the spring. So Pa just went over and pulled the plug out of the bin where they were hiding the grain, started filling his bucket, and said, I am buying this wheat. How much do you want for it? And they were like, no, we don't want to sell the wheat. And he says, I am buying this wheat. How much do you want for it? So... When it comes time to feed in the family, even the most moral of people will do things they would normally find unconscionable. The next step beyond that, because they were out of potatoes, they were out of they were out of everything. They did have some livestock, though, but they didn't want to. To uh, they had a calf and a milk cow, which would dry at the time of the winter, um, and two horses, but they didn't want to. Uh, obviously, you don't want to butcher your livestock if you're a farmer because that's just, you know, it's yeah. really not a good idea if you can help it. Some of them got desperate enough to do that. Yeah, and but that you, you're going to butcher the livestock before you're going to watch your children starve. Yep. So that's where they were at. The they cow were was at, next on the list. You know, and, and frankly, you know, I said some of them did. Some of them, some of them butchered them. But... Uh, <laughs> There's one good horse and one bad horse. <laughs> we know which one would have gone yeah, we into know the which, pot. We know which horse would have gone to the pot if it would. Don't been. be the bad horse. <laughs> if, if food is getting very low, if any of you horses out there are listening, don't be the jug-headed mule who doesn't have the sense to 
be calm and deal with the situation because that's the one who would have gone in the pot. Well, also, right, when so. some of the men uh, did get out, they found a guy who had a, a store of wheat. Again, he meant it for seed feed, but by a combination of pointing out the people were starving to death and offering him ridiculously high prices, they talked him into selling him this wheat. They take the wheat, wheat back to town to the grocer, and the grocer decides he's going to more than double the price. About triple the price on it, actually. And uh, basically, a mob was threatening to just break in and steal it from him. And the only way they got out of that is by, okay, our hero Paw stepped in and said, yeah, you know, you can charge whatever you want, but if you ever want to do any business in this town once spring comes, you're not going to do this to us. Because, yes, you have the right to do that to us now, but we're going to remember. You have the upper hand now, you won't have the upper hand forever. So price gouging is both a very real thing, and the only way they stopped it was by invoking the community ties. And that is one of the biggest problems, in my mind, in American society today, is we don't have the community restraints on bad behavior because the a lot of communities are so diffuse, the guy who's jerking you around can live hundreds of miles away and never have to deal with you. They had the option of putting the social pressure on the guy because he lived in the same community, and he had to be reasonable. But that's not as true today. So expect price gouging to be a thing. Now, I will tell you, my own price gouging story, and I may have mentioned this before, but it's one that I saw. Uh, so, about 9-11. They all remember 9-11 who were, were, who were alive back then. We remember it. Well, in my town, the town we live in, there are, well, there, let's say, there were four gas stations at the time. There's a local mom and pop. And then there's a community co-op style. And there are two chain commercial uh, gas stations. Low you know, regional type chains. And uh, the attacks happened. And by 2 o'clock in the afternoon, of course, people kind of panicked and they went to the gas station and started filling up their cars. And by 2 in the afternoon, the two commercially owned gas stations had jacked their price up. Uh, just a ridiculous, I forget exactly what it was, but I believe it was about 75 cents a gallon. It was outrageous. They jacked up the price, 75 cents a gallon, or somewhere around in there. And the local uh, farm service, I'll go ahead and say who it is, but it's, it's, a, it's a cooperative type thing. Also, jacked theirs up to match the thing. But the mom and pop store, the mom and pop shop, the, the people who are in the community, the people who own the local, you know, the local company, locally owned, you know, you see these people in church, local people, did not raise their prices a cent. And this is a mom and pop place that closes at 6, 6 p.m. And it just, you know, they're, they're full-service garage. These others weren't. But so the mom-and-pop place didn't raise a cent. Of course, they got cars lined up. 
around the block. And the owner of the gas station at the time, and the owner's son, stayed there, and they pumped. And they pumped, and they pumped. They were there until like 9.30, way, way past the closing time, pumping gas for the people. And this wasn't a 24-hour service thing at the time. This was just a, you closed at 6, you were done. They stayed there until 9.30, pumping gas without raising the price a cent because they were not going to gouge their neighbors. They weren't going to do it. And that the only reason I bring this up is because that is an exception. You just don't see that very often. But where do we go out of our way yeah. to buy our gas to this day? Yeah, where we bought our gas for almost the last 20 years. You better believe. Fortunately for us, they put in a 24-hour pump because we're always running around at weird times of the day and night. But you know, so they get our business, 100% of my business in the county. I only, I only buy gas there. So anyway, just an aside. In another element, it, it was about the uh, two young men who took off with their teams to travel about 20 miles to find the guy who reportedly had some seed wheat he could sell. And out on the plains, it's fine as long as the sky is clear. But these storms had been rolling in with such regularity, and they brought visibility down to, like, a foot. And there were no landmarks that you could usefully use to get back. And, of course, since it's a child's book, the guys didn't get stuck out there and freeze to death out in the cold, dark prairie. But... This much I can tell you from experience, when you have these big weather events, it changes the topography. Things don't look like you expect them to look. It's very easy to get disoriented, even in areas you know. These guys didn't have a compass. Uh, Or most people who have cell phones now have compasses, but they may not know how to use a compass, which is just as much of a problem. And of course... In certain situations, cell phones won't be working. If you've been out of power and you can't charge your cell phone. (coughs) Yeah. Even our good dive compasses would have been in trouble in this situation because they would have frozen solid in the... uh, They may be floating Uh, in oil. But but the oil would... Not the Suntos. They're good to 80 below. 80 below. That's that's a lot. We got got good compasses. So we would have been okay on the compasses, but... Many compasses even would have failed in those kinds of conditions. But having a compass and knowing how to use it, or at least being aware that your sense of orientation might be messed up by the changing look of the land when you have these extreme weather events. To be fair, most people don't have $120 compasses, let alone two of them. But we do, because we use them. Uh, We go some places where you really don't want to lose your boat. It's a very big ocean, just like it's a very big prairie, and they really didn't want to lose their town. As a side, if anybody's curious what the crushed up of a Blackberry Curve is, it's 30 feet. <laughs> we did it just to find out. You can actually, we were, we dove, quick aside, we dove in a quarry. A friend of mine and I dove in a quarry uh, that was right next to a cell phone tower. We lost the ability to... Any voice signal went just right. As soon as we went underwater, it was over. But we could still text to about three feet down. 
And then we took the phone down to see, just in a plastic baggie, to see what would happen if you went, took it to depth, because it's not depth rated, and it crushes at about 30 feet. I guess the new iPhone, they've done crush tests with those that go down to 100 feet. But this... uh, We're pointing at it. The BlackBerry Curve was not one of them. It it just went... It was just really kind of fun. That was right at the end of the BlackBerry era, so we didn't have any use for the phone after that new one was bought. But... I, I hated that phone, so. <laughs> he was getting even with it, to be honest with you. Last main point. Last main point. When it was, spring was late, and they were almost out of food again, and they were just so tired of being stuck inside by the howling wind and the biting cold, and it felt like nothing was ever going to change. It can't beat us. This won't last forever. Th- uh, this can't keep going. We can. We can outlast this. And outlast it they did. Because it was winter, and you can always beat winter. You just have to keep after it. It will, sooner or later, spring will come. And if it's a nuclear winter where it's going to last for three years, well, just, you're in trouble. (laughs) Okay, you're screwed. Yeah, spring still will come, but it might be a very long time. But unless it's a nuclear winter, unless... You get into a situation where uh, Yellowstone blows, spring will come. You need patience and perseverance to last out here, they say, and, well, that that much is true. And sometimes, you know, if Yellowstone does blow, sometimes it just stinks to be you. Yeah, we're not going to get out of this alive anyway. No. This is about making life as good as possible under whatever circumstances you got. But there's no way to eliminate the as possible from that statement. That's right. When we're driving down a road in Mississippi, I don't know what these drivers around me are going to do. You know, that could be it for us. If if my guy has a bad day and there we go. So you never know. But by golly, I'm getting warm. And after reading that, that book, (laughs) that's that's a good thing. Yeah. But here we are. We're we're in our car with our Airbags all around us. We're wearing our seat belts. We're doing what we can. We're driving the speed limit. You know, we're doing what we can, and that's what you, that's what we're talking about. You do what you can. So, want to wrap it? I've got no great wisdom other than spring does come, but you'll be glad if you are ready for winter. If you haven't read that book, read the book. We didn't really spoil anything for you because it's the long. The long winter is the long winter. If you if you read it when you were a kid, go back and read it again or listen to the audiobook because there's a lot of stuff in here that I caught as an adult that I didn't get as a kid. Like all good writers, that's that, you know, write kids books. There's a lot of adult information in here. You just wouldn't notice it as a kid because it's not your your mindset doesn't go that way. But it was written by an adult and uh, it was written by somebody who could write. And somebody who'd seen some things. And somebody who'd seen some things. And God help me, I never want to go through a winter like that. <laughs> Second that. We'll leave you with that. So we're going to sign off from Montgomery County, Mississippi. Actually, we're probably out of Montgomery County right now. But from somewhere in Mississippi. Somewhere in Mississippi, we're, we're gone. We're out.